Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that happens to address the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. So what we do here is hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more not only informed, but hey, healthier too. I'm one of your hosts, Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Anna Vicino. Hi. And Dr. David Kipper. Hi, David. Hi, Peter. Hi, Anna. Hi, Lori. Hello, hello. We're ready to be educated about our health, and we've got some some stuff that's happening that's relevant to what's going on in society today. First of all, we're starting with a quiz. Dr. Kipper is going to quiz us about menstrual cycles. It's period jeopardy. Item two, we are discussing, uh, first of all, just a, a kind of a primer and overview on diabetes, and can it be reversible? I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Cholesterol, we're all worried about cholesterol. And we've heard on this podcast, I've learned a lot about cholesterol as far as the nonsense we've been told, all misinformation about good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. We got a new breakthrough that just happened, which is cool. And then we got a call about everybody's taking this weight loss medic. Everybody in Hollywood, you turn on TV, everybody's thinner and nobody's admitting that they're taking this. Right. They're all saying they're on hormones. I'm like, you're not on hormones. So we'll talk about that too, because that's a segment called, hey, what about me? where a caller has that question. So here we go. Okay, period jeopardy. I know we can't play the music because apparently people own rights to it. But um, Dr. Kipper, you've got some questions for us. To put this into some context, this week in my office, this is a very common thing that I say. I've always actually found this interesting that a female patient came in, was having some menstrual spotting and bleeding and was concerned, you know, is this cancer? Is this... This provoked, and she came in with her husband, and this provoked a conversation about what we do know about the menstrual period, especially men. I mean, <laughs> we're idiots when it comes to this. And unfortunately, a lot of women don't understand exactly how this works. So Shots I thought it might, <laughs> it might be interesting to ask some simple questions. I'm going to throw it up to the three. I of just you. have to admit before we get into this, I'm a bit of an expert about some menstrual period, which, by the way, if most people don't know, happened from the early 1600s to about 1657, <laughs> which was the menstrual period? period in America. Yeah. Oh, that was the menstrual period. Oh, the menstrual gosh. period. I know nothing about Very entertaining time. Oh, I, I misunderstood. Okay. And by the way, Peter, that was a long menstrual period. I mean, normally there are Well, you know, there was, there was a lot of touring shows that needed minstrels, so. <laughs> it's a great time to be a minstrel. So I'm, I'm going to throw out some questions, and please uh, respond as you wish. The first question is, where did this 28-day metric come from? What is it about 28 days that makes this a cycle? The phases of the moon. A moon phase is 28 days. Okay. Lori, do you want to perhaps give a right answer to this? Oh, damn it. I don't know. 28 days. There has to be some rhythm to something that was going on there that's not necessarily related to the body. You're all so very close and yet so very far. So, P Peter, your concept of the, the cycling, the 28 days, is, is actually right because what happens is there are two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, that regulate these cycles. And there is a buildup over 28 days of estrogen and a falling down over 28 days of progesterone. And at some point in the middle, at day 14, the, o the ovary releases an egg. When the, when the egg is released, the estrogens start to accumulate. And what they do is that they build up the nest, the uterine lining, in case an egg is fertilized. 
And that fertilized egg will then land on a nest that is uh, supported by this extra estrogen and tissue. I just know I was going to say all of that, but I didn't want to show up. (laughs) If the egg is not fertilized and the estrogen then has built this nest, then the nest starts to break down. And that that can start anywhere around day 20. And then after 28 days, that nest then comes out. That's the bleeding. So that's what this 28-day cycle do any, is. Do, do any people present differently, David, even though that's the general consensus? Do any women's bodies present at 35 days where their cycle is very different? Again, a smart question, and the answer is yes. Not everybody is exactly 28 days. Not everybody is 28 days throughout their lifespan. So there are times when stress or other issues might interrupt that normal cycling. But generally, women are pretty normal and, and regular, if, if you will, and, and predictable. The reason that's important is that women that have symptoms of PMS, that's another question I have coming up, but if you know that you have a predictable 28-day cycle, you know that around day 25, day 26, you're headed for some symptoms, so does your husband, and so you might be able to predict what's coming and then sort of mitigate that. It would be good if the husband didn't say, are you about to have your period? Like, don't, just don't say it. We all know it, but don't say it. You're inviting a conversation. That's very good advice. It's not going to stick, but it's very good <laughs> advice. We men have a very short uh, memory on this, this stuff. That's true. So given that, uh, what are the average number, what's your guess on the average number of eggs a woman will release over her lifetime? It's a math problem. What's 40 times 12 times, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. 50, 520 eggs. Very good guess. Very good guess. You're wrong, but it's a good guess. I'm guessing, oh, give me a second. Before five goes into six, five, I have no idea, but here we go. Well, 480, I should have said. I, apparently, I don't know math. 526. We got a 480, we got a 526, Lori? 500, by Price is Right rules, $1. Anna, you get the prize, it's 450 is the Whoa. average. And again, that's a simple math problem, but- Not for us. <laughs> not that simple. What is interesting is that there is a blood test. It, it's called an AMH blood test, anti-mullerian hormone. And that hormone actually will guesstimate how many eggs are left in the basket? And this is why this, and you can do this at home, by the way. There's a home blood test that you can get. So let's say you're trying to figure out, you're in your late 30s and you're wondering, or you're in your early 40s, you're wondering, am I still going to be able to conceive? You do this test and you see, okay, I got 30 eggs left in the basket. I can still conceive. So it's a very, and also this test can be done in utero. You can find out before the the little girl is born what the likelihood is of her having the ability. That's what? Baby, yeah, isn't that crazy? Wow. Wait a minute. Well, what about the surprise ones where I was 57 years old, way past my childbearing years, and I had a baby? How does that figure into this? They had had more than the 450. They might have come in at your number, or they might have- Would this test have shown that? Yes. Oh, so people who are surprised 
that they get pregnant later in life. If they did this test, they would know that they could get pregnant later they in life. They still had some eggs. Yes. This is wow. This, I think this is sort of amazing. So speaking of when the uh when the egg basket is empty, which is what menopause is, what is the average age for women that will enter menopause? Fifty-two. Spot on. No need for more guessing. What is PMS? Let me ask that question. How do you define PMS in a very simple way? Oh, you mean like the actual symptoms of PMS? Yes. Yes. Oh. Irritableness. Your boobs hurt. Bloated. Depression. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I always thought it was if you had too much progesterone, it was making you cranky and you make your boobs hurt and make you retain water. Everyone's comment was correct. There was this huge hormonal shift, as we talked about. Estrogen builds up, progesterone builds down. And so these rapid hormone changes create the mood, mood issues and the mood swings. And as the uterus is trying to eliminate the nest, the blood, it has to contract. And when the smooth muscle contracts, that's painful. When you have a kidney stone, that's smooth muscle contracting in the, in the ur ureters. I didn't know it was the same type of smooth muscle contraction. These pains are very similar. When you have a gallstone that you're trying mm. to eliminate, that's mm -hmm. smooth muscle. That hurts. So the pain comes from the smooth muscle contraction of the uterus, and the mood shifts come from these, these changes in hormones. And I ask you a question about that. So you have a mood shift and you have an attitude shift. Can that last indefinitely or forever, just like PMS in some women lasts a period, but then some experience it and never never goes away where they have huge bout for a long long extended period can that happen with pms where the even with the hormonal change it affects mood for for a long time yes because there are people that have an intrinsic or underlying depressive disorder mm. so so those depressions Triggers actually that. get accentuated wow. during the menstrual cycle and if there are situational issues going on around the time of a woman's period that has an underlying depression um, it's time for their husband to pack up and get well, out of there. You know what? I always used to tell my husband too. I was like, he would be like, why are you, you know, you get mean. And I was like, I'm not mean. I'm actually just verbalizing the things that when I have more estrogen in my system during that phase of the cycle, I won't verbalize it because the estrogen makes me nicer. You know, my wife says to me and make me feel better. She says, this is the real me. I just yeah. work hard to cover it up the rest of the time. That's a better way of saying it. Just shifting to postpartum depression after you give birth. Is, are there treatments for that? Because I keep reading about people who really have a hard I think time. I, I had mean, that and was never diagnosed with really? it. Really? For a long yeah. time? Mm -hmm. So postpartum depression has some genetic underpinnings. There is treatment now for postpartum depression. Basically, it's an antidepressant that we give people immediately, and it knocks it out. It's amazing. This is new. It promotes serotonin, and it's given early. And it works relatively quickly because, remember, serotonin medicines generally don't work right away. Right. They take a while, but this one does. And this one is magnificent in turning these things around. Just use for that, David, or is that a depressive medicine? No, just use for that because Interesting. when you think about what happens in a postpartum depression, the bonding between mother and child is affected. It affects both of them, meaning that the mother is not capable of and not interested. And the child, without that kind of maternal nurturing, has long-term effects. Well, this problem is a much more serious issue 
you know what? It's funny you say this. I'm going to get a little personal here, but maybe somebody out there can relate and this might help somebody. After I was born in 1973, my mother went into the hospital for postpartum depression for two years, almost two and a half Whoa. years. And I floated around a bit. Hence, Anna. I became a comic. So those long-term repercussions Anna. are real. Two years she it's, was in yes, for treatment? Yes. And if only we had that drug. Well, they, they, she did electroshock and lithium. That's what they did back then. So wait, so you only know this stuff anecdotally. So who took care of you? I floated around with family members because my dad left. It was an interesting time. Anna, and so when wow. I had my daughter, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't <laughs> having the same thing. But now that you talk about serotonin issues and that, ha and learning on this show that serotonin happens in the gut, well, later in life at 58, she's diagnosed with celiac. I'm diagnosed with celiac. And it makes me wonder about the whole serotonin thing. I don't and know. I asked you a question the, about your mom. The since we're talking personally. So when she came out of the hospital, she then you got you back and raised you after the, immediately yeah. after that, and she was okay. She was not okay, but yes, yeah. she raised me. Got it. Are she you struggled. close? Are you close now? No, she passed away nine years ago. I wonder. You know something? Because my mom had a lot of issues and was at doctors all the time, and depression didn't come out of her room till noon any day yep. i don't know the story of when i was born how i was how she handled that nobody talks about that stuff right but th it's it's really interesting and you're talking you're talking previous years they didn't have the techniques and the ability no or the sensitivity to do this wow and peter to your point people still don't talk about this there's a tremendous sort of guilt to this that happens not just with the the mom but with the family and because they're so supposed to be parenting and they're not. And I was going to say when you said earlier, you know, ask your mom how her menopause was, because generally it's genetic, like how you're going to handle it. And I would say since she's been gone for nine years, I, you know, and back then, too, you would never talk about it. I feel like we're barely talking about menopause now. And it's very important, which is why we're doing it and why we're talking about it, because my mom certainly wouldn't have like told me anything. We, women didn't talk about it. You know, so if you have a, a mom in the physical with you, I talk about it with her and ask her about it. I remember as uh, I have two brothers and I remember when we were little kids, I once <laughs> turned to my older brother and I said, Mike, on the calendar that we have for our family, what does period mean? <laughs> and we were, I was six. That's Mike amazing. Was eight, and he didn't know. I didn't know. And I mean. She warned you though. She was trying to warn you. And because of that, both of David's brothers and David became doctors. <laughs> so just to find that just out. Just to find out that out. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. This is That's fascinating. a long walk to find that out. Amazing. So I'm going to ask a couple other simple okay. questions because I know we need to move along. But For sure. Um, one of the questions that came up in this family and this weekend in the office was about options for birth control. This was a family that didn't want more children and were birth control pills the best way to go? And there was a family history of breast cancer mm. in this family. So good question. Uh, oral hormones were probably not safe. So there are a couple other things, and I won't use this as a quiz, but I'll quickly run through this. There's a there's a hormonal IUD. It's called Murina. And Murina is you can leave this IUD in for five years. It releases hormones that keep you from getting pregnant. Uh, it actually releases progesterone, and progesterone, as we talked about, is one of those two hormones. Uh, and what progesterone does in, in this is to thicken the cervical mucus and form a little barrier over the cervix so that the 
the sperm can't get in to find the egg. So that's how that works. There's a birth control shot. There are menstrual cups where you actually put a little uh, cup that goes over the cervix, and that will catch some of the blood and prevent, actually, the sperm from getting in. Uh, so there are other forms of birth control, if you are like this family that visited with me this week, that are safe and are non-hormonal non, um, in that regard. So I'm going back to some questions now. We're almost done with this. Can you get pregnant during your period? Yes. Bingo. Yes. Have you, done that. Okay. And I have you know, a 24-year-old to prove it. <laughs> do you know why that happens or how that happens? Because the sperm was so strong it said, <laughs> ha ha, you can't stop me. I'm going. Yeah, I'm the going sperm's in. like, hey, I'm a good-looking sperm. Get out of here. Get down right. here, egg. It's like a Schwarzenegger Come down sperm. that fallopian tube and let's do this. We're let's doing it. a baby. So that's, that's half of the answer, that the sperm lives for... How many days does the sperm live in there? Anybody? Ten days, but if you call that living. <laughs> it's five days. I mean, five maybe days. yours are ten days. I'm, but <laughs> five Mine days have, I'm is, just going by me. Peter, you got me on that one. If a woman's ovulatory cycle is, is unpredictable and they're ovulating early, and the sperm is there at the right time. So yes, you can get pregnant during your period. Um, and the last question I'm gonna ask, uh, which I think is sort of interesting, women think they lose a lot of blood during their periods, most, most women do. So if you were to quantitate this in tablespoons, I ask each of you, how many tablespoons do you think women lose on average 26. 26 i just wanted to make it seem like i knew two 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 all right 26 five. to Lori. five five so anna once again your closest uh it's between actually you and Lori got this right it's between three and six tablespoons so it's not women think they're losing a tremendous amount of blood but they're really not four tablespoons is a quarter of a cup that seems substantial. They quit showing off with your conversion stuff. Well, okay? I know. It's, it's only if I'm cooking <laughs> that I know these things. All right. So another question is, uh, is period sex good or bad for you? I would say it's great for you. Why do you think it's good? Oxytocin. Well, a couple things do happen. It reduces pain on your period, and so the oxytocin that comes from the sex does help reduce pain. Anna, you're exactly, you know your menstrual issues. And Sadly. There's, there's a little more lubrication that happens during sex. So that actually makes women feel better during this process. But what's the bad news in this? What are the negatives for having sex in your period during babies your period? Babies can happen. Well, if, if you, you don't use protection. don't want babies, yes. Right. So during this period of time, uh, there is a change in the microbiome in the vagina. And that change in the microbiome sets the stage for more pathogens coming in. So there are more STDs during sex uh, on a period. Gentlemen, if you're listening now, you can turn it back on. Just kidding. I hope you listened to that whole thing. That was important. Uh, this is a subject matter that affects all of us. Type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, 
can, can can diabetes be reversible? I know we're focusing on type two, but I figure we, you're probably going to give us a little primer here and tell us the difference. What's going on with diabetes? This week, I did have two families who came in dealing with diabetes, and the amount of misinformation or lack of information out there is always a little overwhelming to me because these things are, you know, the articles on diabetes and the media on diabetes, it's everywhere now, especially with these drugs that are out now to control the type 2 diabetes. So there are two types of diabetes very quickly. Type 1 diabetes, you run out of insulin. Usually it's in your teenage years, and you then have to go on insulin shots because you no longer have insulin. So we're really talking more about type 2 diabetes, okay. where the insulin itself becomes resistant. It's not working as well. You may be making enough of it but your body isn't responding to it. Like the cells don't want the insulin? Like why, why is that? Well, insulin resistance is a, is a function of the insulin that's being produced is not being adequately used by the body. Why does that happen? It happens because almost always because people have extra adipose tissue. They're, they've gained weight. Adipose tissue is a, is a magnet to the sugar. The insulin can't capture it enough to take it from the circulation and put it into the muscle cells and into the liver for storage. So your insulin is there, it's just not able to do its job. So that's insulin resistance. And that's actually the basis of not only these treatments with these new semi-glutide medicines, but it's also the basis of what's going on with these neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So that's what happens. You cannot cure at this point type 2 diabetes. We can mitigate it. We can control it. Uh, what's the simplest way to control type 2 diabetes? I'd throw that question out. Don't ingest excess sugar. Weight loss. It's the simplest one because if you reduce the amount of adipose tissue, you're going to make the insulin that's being produced by the pancreas more efficient. So the more fat cells you have, the less insulin is going to be available. But David, what about people who are thin who have type 2 diabetes? Oh, yeah. Where diet's My husband's not uncle make... was so thin and he had type 2 and I was always like, but he, he did eat a tremendous amount of sugar and baked goods and cookies and he loved that stuff. So I was like, okay. But he was thin. He, he didn't present as like somebody who gained weight, you know? So that speaks to the point of insulin resistance from a different source. It's not just the adipose tissue. It's that the insulin that's being produced for whatever reason, that mechanism is not working well, and the cells are not responsive for some reason. So yes, there, there's there's also that reason. That's more difficult to control. You know, that's just something intrinsic in the way your your body's working. When it comes from being overweight, that's a much easier mechanism to control. So we're not able to cure type 2 diabetes. I think in the future, we are going to be able to cure both because I think stem cells are going to be the answer for that. They've been working on this. They're actually looking at microbiome transplants, by the way, to see if by adjusting someone's microbiome, because the insulin levels are developed and determined in the microbiome. So if you take a microbiome from somebody that has no diabetes, put that into somebody that has diabetes, you might see some changes. And we've actually seen some of this. So that's another potential mechanism. How do you transplant? Because we talked about fecal 
fecal cells that you put in if you have an infection that can't be cured and you're putting a healthy fecal cells from somebody's microbiome. How do you how do you transplant an entire microbiome? Well, you can transplant the cecum. The cecum is where okay. all this takes place. So again, those questions have to be worked out, but but there is a potential mechanism now going forward, not in the next few years, but as we get better and better with these uh, microbiomes and also gene editing is going to come into this at some point. But we're far away from gene editing because we don't know all the negatives, but we know that there are some potential positives. And this week, this just happened, and this relates to diet, I guess, and also uh, diabetes. There's been a cholesterol treatment breakthrough. David, what's the breakthrough? The breakthrough is a discovery that we're not just dealing with the bad LDL cholesterol as a mechanism for coronary disease. We do know that cardiovascular disease is dependent upon these high lipid levels. And forever we've been chasing down the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, and we've been able to control that, but we're still not doing a great job. What we have found recently in the last couple of years, we've identified another bad cholesterol. We talked about this a little bit on a, a couple shows ago about how there's a lipoprotein A, and the lipoprotein A is a cousin of LDL. It's a different form, and it's also made in the liver, and it also is atherogenic. It makes bad lipids. But what we didn't know was how significant it was. We didn't know really where it came from. What we've learned that this is primarily a genetic issue, so that diet and weight loss and exercise and all these lifestyle maneuvers that we use to bring our cholesterol numbers down and our, and our weight down uh, have no effect on this because this is genetically predetermined. So now what do we do? Well, what we now do is we figured out some medication and treatments for this that we can, first we identify the lipo-A levels in the body. We can do this very easily. And we can determine whether, just like LDL, you have a low risk, you have a moderate risk. Oh boy, you have a lot of this stuff, so you have a high risk. It also affects the aortic valve. So this buildup of this particular lipid has a negative effect on one of the important valves in the heart, not just the coronary artery. So, and this is huge. I mean, it's like a one and a half billion people in the world have this. So you can be tested by your doctor. It's a question to always ask your doctor now, can you test me for my LIPO-A, not just my LDLs? And what we have available now are some treatments. So one treatment, uh, and they all basically do the same thing. They all work on the liver to make the LIPO-A production minimized or eliminated. And the product that's on the market now that's sort of gaining a lot of interest is something called lepodicerin. And lepodicerin is safe, it's effective. It is part of this RNA technology that we are using that, that we take these RNAs that make proteins that can counteract the protein synthesis of the lipoA in the liver. So that's sort of where this comes from. And then I'm gonna get to another one that's analogous. Um, they work within two weeks and they can stop the production of the lipo A for up to a year, 
and they're about 95% effective. So if you test positive in your doctor's office for lipo A, there is treatment for this. And the treatment is, unlike the statins, which you have to stay on forever, pretty much, and they're not 95% effective. It's a much lower effectiveness. It's a, it's a good effectiveness, but it's not like this. And it doesn't work in two weeks. So this is really amazing information. They're now doing gene editing to do the same thing to eliminate these lipo A's from the liver. And again, we run into this problem with gene editing. And the gene editing studies have been unbelievable. But with gene editing, we don't know the long-term effects. If we're knocking out the lipo A's with gene editing, what else are we knocking out? We don't know yet. We're just starting to look at this. So this CRISPR technology that we've talked about before, which, which um, and if you think about what this is, you have a gene, you have DNA, which is that double-stranded stuff that codes for a protein. You take an eraser like you would to your, your assignment in school and you just erase something. That's what we're doing. We're erasing a gene. And where this is going to take us in other ways, we don't know. But there are, there are some good therapies now for lipo-A. It's going to change the landscape because now if you can reduce the LDLs with the statins, if you can almost eliminate lipo-As with these treatments, and I think it was two weeks ago we talked about colchicine that we're using now for the inflammation in these coronary arteries that's part of this puzzle. Now we've got a trifecta of minimizing coronary disease. So for those youngsters out there that may or may not be listening to this podcast, there's great hope out there. And especially for these people with the LIPO-A problem that have this genetic issue. And no matter how skinny they get, no matter how much sleep they get, no matter how much exercise they get, that's not going to help this problem. But now we have something. That's a great this just happened. And Relating to all of this, we have a question in our Hey, What About Me segment that has to do with weight, weight loss, and the new drugs that are out there. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I know there's a lot of talk about diabetes drugs that help with weight loss, like Ozempic, but now I hear there's an even better one. Is that true? Thanks. The answer to this is there is a better one, and there's a better one. It's called Zepbound, C-E-P-B-O-U-N-D, Zepbound. Uh, it's an injectable. It's the newest uh, entrant into this race of the Osempics, the Ribelsis, the Wagovis, and the Monjaros. What these four drugs do, they work on what's called the GLP-1 agonists, and those are glucagon-like peptide agonists. They increase the insulin response. They help the body break down sugar and fat by slowing down the gastric emptying. Remember, the stomach stays open longer, which promotes some hormone release in the brain called leptin, which tells you to leave the table, you're full. And it also minimizes the secretion of glucagon. And glucagon is a storage product for sugar that the liver has. In case we need a big burst of energy, the glucagon is released, sugar gets released, and we have more energy. The reason Zepound is better than these four is that it contains something called tirzepidide, and tirzepidide is now added to the GLP-1s, and it is a GIP product. 
that stands for gastric inhibitory polypeptide. And what that does specifically, it works on the brain to make the brain feel that we don't need to eat. It's very much in the leptin group, but it augments the leptin release in the, in the brain to say, okay, we're full. So now you add the GIP to the GLP-1, and you have this super semi-glutide, which is called ZEP-bound. And it is amazing in the results in that the average weight loss on this product was about 52 pounds over 16 months, and it's safe. Uh, I was going to say, are there side effects? Is it going to be hard to get like the other ones? Is there going to be a shortage? It's going to be a shortage because it's as expensive as the other ones. It's going to be about $1,000 a month. And the difference is, is the insurance companies are just now getting used to paying for Osepic, and now we're begging them to pay for these other ones, Monjoro being the better of those four. And now you've got something that's coming around that's even better. It's, it's a very big problem now. And the reason this is an important problem is that if you think about this, weight loss is, has such impact on all chronic illness never mind just heart disease and diabetes. It affects everything because the more weight you carry, the more inflammation you have in your organs, the more inflammation you have, the more likely you are to get cells that are going to change, convert to cancer cells, uh, and all the chronic illnesses that people have, whether they're autoimmune, whether they're cardiovascular, uh, these illnesses are worsened by inflammation. So these drugs have an amazing effect well beyond weight loss. Well, David, I got to ask you though, so with this new drug that beats the other drugs, they've been trying to get a weight loss drug that does this for a million, a long time, long, long time in laboratories that, that creates satiation. It seems like they keep coming up with new and better, and they realize the amount of money you can make by creating that drug is in two weeks, they're going to be a drug that beats this drug. And then in three weeks, a drug that beats that drug. Are they have they opened the floodgates to figuring out something they never figured out before accidentally from a diabetes drug or whatever that's, it, that happens to be doing this? And now they go, oh, now we understand what inhibits and what hits that part of the brain. The floodgates have opened. Now we just keep upping the ante and making a better drug, a better drug, a better drug. The answer is yes, Peter. I think that this technology and, and this research is going to keep going. I think where we're going to see the differences initially are in how we deliver these products. So right now, all of these, except for the ribelsis, are delivered as injectables. Right. Not everybody wants to do an injectable. And so they're now looking to make these all into oral products. So that's going to change that landscape a little bit. What really needs to change is not how we are fine-tuning these, but how we are reimbursing people. Right. For these medicines. Well, would you think it's as soon as they become more more available and, and produced in mass, the price will go down, hopefully. Now, this is a big discussion with Medicare because Medicare, you know, think about who's on Medicare, people that are over 65. Where do you see most degenerative illness and most chronic illness, right. people over 65? So who benefits the most? So these conversations are going on between the drug companies, the government, and the general public. It would be so nice if we could muster the same kind of 
uh, dialogue and social media campaign that we do with other things politically with this issue. This would be a really interesting way for us to approach this well, also, problem. Also, shouldn't the cost be, I mean, they rip us off as far as epinephrine, which costs a dollar and has been around 100 years, and injectables are fortune for an EpiPen. Um, isn't this because it was discovered, incidentally, it already existed in other treatments, they didn't spend a billion dollars to develop this stuff. They don't have to get their costs back. Wasn't this already produced? These drugs, series of drugs, already existed for something else. So the immense charge shouldn't be there for the development, I'm guessing. And to your point, Peter, these drugs, these new semi-glutides, didn't come out of the air. They came out of a progression. Remember, we had Trulicity. We had things before this that were precursors to this where right. they were getting smarter. And then they got a little smarter, and so absolutely right. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the if the price, if and when, with lobbying, et cetera, these prices drop. And all right, let's do a recap. A lot of stuff we covered. We did cover a lot today. We had a period jeopardy. So don't be afraid to ask your doctor to explain some of these nuances. It's always an uncomfortable conversation when you talk about women's health issues uh, with with men and with women. Not everybody really understands how this works. So talk to your doctor if you have any questions. And then we discussed uh, diabetes. Is it reversible? Is it curable? Not reversible at this point, but I think there's hope in the future. Type 1 diabetes, you run out of insulin, so you're going to be dependent on it until we come up with those formulas. And type 2, at this point, not reversible and mitigate this best with weight loss. We talked about the this just happened segment, cholesterol treatment breakthrough that just happened, which is important. We have treatment now that's that's here for lipo A problems. Ask your doctor to check you for it and ask your doctor what's available now to treat it. And in the hey, what about me? Our caller wanted to know about yet another weight loss drug that just hit the market. Does it work better? Zepbound, it's the newest addition and it does work a little better. It's safe. Uh, the weight loss statistics are better than any of the others. It may not be available because of its cost, but it's going to be on the shelves. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org and enter your question. He might just answer it on the air. Plus, we have socials at Bedside Matters Pod on Twitter slash X slash whatever you want to call it and at Bedside Matters Podcast on Instagram. Follow us and like us and we'll follow you back. There you go. And by the way, I want to thank everybody who participated in the show. Dr. Kipper, the book Override, it's so important to know about brain chemistry and how it impacts everything you do, every decision you make, procrastination. Um, it's fascinating. Fascinating book. Check it out. Um, Anna's website offers recipes, sauces, spices, or cookbooks all about gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb eating. Go to AnnaVicino.com. Producer Laurie doesn't have a website. If she did, it would be fascinating. She's a great artist and a wonderful producer. And, and you, of course. I want to thank you for listening to Bedside Matters. Because if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday. So follow us, like us, and have a terrific week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.